0: Hi, listeners. It's Irina here, the producer of MIT Catalysts. I'm here to explain why this episode and some future ones are going to be a bit different. If you've been following MIT Catalysts since their launch last September, first off, thank you. And secondly, you'll know that we typically focus on highlighting the stories of entrepreneurs in the technology space out here in Northern California. But times are different. Since late December last year, the virus known as severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 which causes the disease commonly referred to as COVID-19 has swept across the globe. We are now all living in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Over 1 million cases have been confirmed worldwide, and the number of infected and dead are steadily ticking up day by day. Everyone's life is dramatically different. Many in our community have had to change the way they work and live. Some are juggling working from home and educating their children. Some are struggling to make ends meet because their jobs disappeared overnight and still others, are having to continue showing up to work, even though their workplaces aren't normal anymore, because everyone else's lives depend on them. Here at MIT Catalysts, host Julia Yu and I decided to shift our focus to a subset of this last category of people. While MIT might be best known for its engineers, scientists, and inventors, many of our classmates and instructors are healthcare workers, possibly in addition to also being engineers, scientists, and inventors. You might have had a roommate or friend who was pre-med, Maybe you were even premed yourself. Full disclosure, both Julia and I have siblings who are doctors on the front lines of the pandemic, so our decision to focus on healthcare workers was very much a personal one. Regardless, right now all of our lives depend on healthcare workers because they are the ones actively diagnosing, treating, and helping come up with new solutions for COVID-19 patients. This first episode is an edited version of an MIT Club of Northern California virtual event that took place early last week. On Tuesday, March 31st, Julia had a Zoom conversation with Dr. Freddie Nguyen, the Arnold O. Beckman Postdoctoral Fellow at MIT, and a resident physician in the Department of Pathology, Molecular, and Cell-Based Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Freddie co-organized the MIT COVID-19 Challenge, a multi-part hackathon devoted to coming up with real solutions for problems surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. On this episode, you'll hear Freddie talk about the hackathon, as well as the rapidly changing situation his hospital is facing in New York. We hope this episode is informative and helpful. We appreciate your patience with our recent change in format. And thank you, as always, for listening.
1: Thank you so much, Freddie. I know that this is, this is quite the unprecedented time that our country and the world is going through. And, you know, there's no one else that we'd like to hear more from than our very own who are on our front lines, uh, you know, you're really our foot soldiers in this war against this invisible enemy right now. Um, so just want to really thank you for your service and contributions right now. I, I think now more than ever, we are realizing just how paramount uh, and how dependent we are on our medical professionals and essential workers. So thank you so much for being on the line with us today.
2: And yeah, My pleasure.
1: Could you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit more about your background and your involvement with the current pandemic?
2: Sure. Uh, so my name is Freddie Wen. I'm currently a resident at Mount Sinai Hospital, New York, also a postdoc fellow at MIT. Prior to that, I did my MD-PhD at New of Illinois, in Urbana-Champaign. Being in the pathology department is probably one of the areas that most people don't hear a lot from and about. Uh, but. Essentially, you can think of us running not just what you normally think of of histology slides or whatnot from tissue specimen or autopsy service, but we are basically running all of laboratory medicine. So all of the COVID-19 testing is happening in our labs. Um, all, of course, all the COVID-19-related autopsies happen through our department as well as now the new area, which is uh, on the treatment for COVID-19. And
1: You're in New York City right now. What's it like being on... The front lines and seeing your city the way it is right now, how is the morale?
2: I think the, I mean, as you can imagine, the morale is still holding up, I would say. I mean, I think, you know, we're, New York City has always been a tough city. It's always been, uh, up to the occasion of meeting the challenges. And I think as a city, we've certainly done the best. We can. I think Mount Sinai in particular has certainly stepped up in that game as well. I think we were one of the first hospital systems in New York to have our own in house testing developed for COVID 19 instead of relying purely on lab core and the health department to learn the COVID 19 testing. And so, and you can see that even just the numbers that are being reported, even though you're saying that high numbers are being reported in New York State, that's largely due because we've expanded our testing capabilities across the city and across the state on a much wider scale than other uh, states and cities have been able to do and so yes of course we're going to catch essentially you know detect more people having COVID-19 um but even the covalent and plasma treatment that was probably a week in the making and we transfused our first patient just this past Saturday so one of the first uh, health systems and the how we think in the country now Recently, some colleagues and students at MIT and I started talking about what was happening, and this was about right when some of the initial kind of directions from MIT were about sending students home. At that point, they hadn't shut down the research labs or most of the university yet, and so it was still very early. But as we were starting to see that, it was we were really thinking. You know, there's now a lot of people who are. Basically, feeling this sense of helplessness and idleness, wanting to help in the situation. Uh, a lot of especially smart, bright people um, that fit into that category. On the flip side, on the clinician side, there's a lot, a lot of unmet uh, problems that need to be solved. And so we wanted to figure out a way to bring those two ends together. So that's how we came up with the MIT COVID 19 uh,
1: challenge. About this COVID 19 challenge, could you tell us a little bit more about what exactly is going to be happening and unfolding over the next couple of weeks? And is, is it too late to get involved?
2: Uh, as you have probably seen, there's no shortage of virtual hackathons. But what's unique about ours is the first is that we want these to be a series of virtual hackathons. So it's not going to be a one-off like the most typical hackathons you see. And then you kind of wonder, like, what's going to happen to the idea afterward? And the reason behind doing a series of these virtual hackathons is really that we want each hackathons to be hyper focused on a smaller subset of problems that were super, super pressing at that point in time. We're quickly realizing that the pressing problems that are today hopefully are not the pressing problems, you know, two or four weeks downstream. But vice versa, the most pressing problem a month from now may not even be in our radar today. The second aspect is that we, you know, in Hacking Medicine, we usually bring in a very diverse group of people to essentially form these hacking teams and you think about essentially every stakeholder of the healthcare system being represented. So we usually want as even distribution as possible between clinicians, scientists, engineers, programmers, user designers, patients, payers, every part of the healthcare ecosystem, we want to have representation there because they all need to be at the same table from the co-definition part of the problem to the co-development of the solution to the implementation aspect as well. But of course, in this current context, we also really recognize that we would not get the propensity of healthcare workers or providers as well represented in our hackathon as we would otherwise. And so another thing we've shifted to is that we have formed partnerships with several clinical partners who have been tasked not only with the problem sourcing and prioritization, and also providing mentors to the event, but also examining their implementation pipeline and really taking a closer scrutiny as to... How can we do rapid implementation? The third aspect that's differentiated us from similar efforts that are out there is that you know our focus is not on just the hackathon itself, but also that post hackathon period. The hackathon is meant to really do that team formation, bringing creative new solutions to the table building out a viable concept, not just from a technical or clinical perspective, but also from an implementation or feasibility perspective, Uh, we still wanted to go through enough of that due diligence to have enough of a high-quality caliber product to solve those problems.
1: That's incredible. It sounds like from what we're hearing, the collaboration between the public and private sectors and between hospitals has just really been so powerful, where, you know, Italian doctors are talking to Chinese doctors are talking to American doctors. Have you experienced that to be the case?
2: Yeah, it's certainly been true that at this point, there are no boundaries, so to speak, right? Like this virus is going to affect all of us. And if numbers are right, about 60 or 70% of the population will ultimately get infected by this. It's um, you know, no, it has no boundaries. It has no borders. So I think it behooves us to come together as a community, as an ecosystem to really tackle these problems. And I think that's even evidence in even how we built the COVID-19 challenge. We certainly could have done it within any one of the single groups at MIT. I mean, hack- hackathons and hacking is part of the culture at MIT, right? But we took the route of really bringing the MIT community together. If we all come together, we'll be able to mechadent and this whole crisis.
1: It says on the website, you know, the challenges here are to first, protect vulnerable populations, and second, support the health system. So are those the outcomes for success of this hackathon?
2: For us, when we talk about how to protect vulnerable populations, or really the at-risk populations, we don't necessarily mean just from probably the traditional sense of like, oh, the elderly population, or people who have comorbidities in terms of respiratory conditions, or, you know, Uh, compromised states that would put them at higher risk for uh, complications from COVID-19 infections. Um, But really, it's thinking about, you know, also the healthcare workforce who's at higher risk because they have more repeated exposure to uh, patients with COVID-19 or thinking about people who may not be geographically or uh, socioeconomically be able to have access to be near enough to a major hospital that can manage COVID-19 patients, right? So, so thinking along more of those verticals as well uh, in terms of the vulnerable populations. And then really, I think the aspects there is not just protecting them, but essentially the whole spectrum of you know, how do you identify who those people are? How do you triage them into even low risk, high risk, medium risk in terms of their risk for, for complications from getting the infection to begin with or the complications from it. Uh, and then thirdly, how do you monitor how those patients are doing or those individuals are doing uh, and be able to hopefully catch them earlier um, when complications do occur? Uh, and of course, you know, be able to protect them to begin with from even contracting um the infection would be, of course, ideal, but I think at this point with community spread of uh, COVID-19, it's highly unlikely that will be, uh, how well the job will be able to do there. The second problem, which has been how do we best help uh, health systems, uh, I think falls under Probably two major categories. One has been essentially how do we better help the workforce, the healthcare workforce, right? Like right now, you know, our entire workforce is basically working 24-7 around this. And, you know, we're expecting these to continue for weeks and months. uh, And at some point, you know, our workforce is going to get burned out at some point. So taking care of our workforce is going to be a hugely important part. So the well-being of our workforce is one aspect. The other has been as we shift different needs of the hospital or the health systems around. So, the example I always give for right now is you know, we've canceled elective surgeries across most hospitals. Now, how do we redeploy uh, that uh, workforce into other parts of the hospital based on their skill set so that they're best used, so to speak? The second part is also similar resource allocation, but from the materials and supplies and equipment aspects. So most of you have heard a lot about the shortages in PPE and ventilators. So that's just one aspect of it, is trying to figure out not only how to make alternative solutions or alternative masks, uh, but even how do you think about the supply chain pipeline? How do you now go from probably ways where it was very much centralized manufacturing, distribution networks to now a very decentralized network of sources of this equipment.
1: We've been reading and hearing a lot about the PPE shortages and the different ad hoc policies that are being implemented across the country. How is your institution advising and supporting this? Is there a universal masking policy? Is there, you know, quality control? Are you guys, I've even heard of hospitals taking donations from the public from private citizens who have been hoarding N95 masks.
2: Yeah, so I mean our hospital system, you know, it's certainly anybody that's uh, in direct patient contact, definitely at this point now is required to wear a uh, mask. Uh, obviously not N ninety five mask, a surgical mask have been fine. N ninety five is more reserved for aerosolization types of procedures at this point. So certainly some of our healthcare workers who feel not as comfortable with surgical masks have been allowed to access N ninety fives, but you know, we've all been constantly mindful of trying to use them as long as we can, um, of course. But uh, I think our own supply right now has uh, been much better in the, this current week uh, than in prior. Um, we recently got a huge infusion from both the N95 masks and surgical masks at the end of last week. I think we had definitely like half a million and 95s now in stock and then over 1.3 million in surgical masks. So I think that's starting to come, but you know, that's, that still has to keep going in terms of inflows. Um, and so our uh, hospital leadership has certainly been thinking on a bigger scale to um, source that because simply we're one of the largest health systems across uh, the country right now. And we have, uh, eight different hospitals uh, that sit underneath the Mount Sinai health system uh, and so you know as much as I think the system appreciates donations from the public and I think they still do take that um, you know just thinking about just the sheer scale of our uh, system and our workforce um, you know even that process starts to become a little bit cumbersome in a sense because there is no easy way uh, essentially, Right? It's not like they can go to a single point person who then maintains all these decentralized sources that are coming in and, and organizing that and coordinating that. I think that's where you're seeing a lot of problems across the country as well. It's like people are making some, people have their own that they're donating in, um, but there's very little coordination efforts that are happening. Not saying that we're necessarily competing, but we're not also talking to each other and coordinating our You're not efforts.
1: sharing best practices.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. And it's not because we don't want to, it's just we don't have the time. Like it's these systems are looking at like we need these things like now, yesterday, not a week from now.
1: That sounds like a a ripe challenge for the COVID-19 challenge, that coordination, right? And just uh, sharing those best practices uh, and making the system a little bit more centralized in that information flow. Some
2: of the best practices are being shared in Facebook groups by doctors that are, have joined. Right, It's not even coming down from any kind of coordination level at, across hospital systems or you know, even from the federal government in a sense.
1: Right. So I actually want to push on that topic a little bit. So every doctor that I've spoken to seems to have a different favorite source and source of truth right whether that is uh fauci or the cdc or uh who Who has been your personal i guess source of truth and does mount sinai look towards a certain source over another
2: i mean i think mount sinai in general takes to take tries to take a very holistic approach in terms of where sources are coming from you know i think obviously uh uh, Dr. Fauci and uh, the NIH, I think he's spoken very clearly about the needs and I think has been very truthful about yeah, uh, the pandemic. Um, WHO is, of course, a highly, highly reliable resource. Um, the CDC as well. And I think, you know, as long as we take everything in context uh, and in a holistic manner, like we usually have a pretty good sense of what's happening. But I think even because as we can see, this is very much a geographic dependence, right? Like right now, you know, we first thought that Massachusetts and what was happening with the Biogen conference was going to be the epicenter of how COVID 19 first came out. But they managed to stay actually fairly stable once they maintained that outbreak. And now it's New York. And or even before that, it was Seattle, right? And what was happening in Washington. Um, but now it's New York that's popped up as. The next uh, big spike uh, and so we can see how even within the united states different parts of the country are at different phases essentially of the pandemic spread right and so i think it behooves the cities that have been at the forefront of it to do a lot more of that sharing of the best practices and how to manage and how to think about it and hoping that the other cities and states learn from that, you know, adopt some of those uh, learned lessons a lot earlier than
1: than we have. Speaking of geographical situations, New York City may be a harbinger for some other major cities. What advice do you have for other cities, doctors who are, you know, sitting on the edge of their seats right now, uh, just trying to anticipate what's to come? What advice would you have for them?
2: I mean, I think right now you, you get all the rest you can get <laughs> before any of this hits. And really, again, as I mentioned earlier, the well-being of our healthcare workforce is first and paramount. Um, you know, if you, you know, obviously the social distancing and isolation process, like, of course, we highly encourage that. If you don't need to interact, then you don't. Um, and because we're going to need healthcare workers who are essentially in our reserves, Right. Uh, I mean, hopefully this doesn't spread too much further, but like I said, you know, uh, we're all going at a marathon speed at this point. And how do we make sure that we can go for not just a few days or even a few weeks, but for months at a time to be able to sustain this, right? Um, I mean, luckily we're now having uh, I think the USS Comfort just docked into our harbor. On Monday, and so that brought in like 1,200 more medical professionals. Even the state has been looking at uh, how to, uh, a couple ways. One has been to figure out how to re enlist people who have retired from the healthcare workforce back into service, so to speak, uh, to help accelerate whatever accreditation or liability type of uh, insurance that needs to happen. Um, to get fast-tracked um, but some of you may have also heard that the medical schools around new york city have been graduating their uh, fourth year medical students early uh, so that they can essentially start their residency internship wherever they are right now uh, so that we can use them as conditional health care workers and providers but i think at this point if your area hasn't been hit hard yet uh, and you're not being pulled to the front lines is you know essentially conserve that energy, conserve that rest, you know, and uh, uh, keep yourself healthy. And then we're going to need you uh, downstream for sure.
1: Now, does that mean in New York, uh, there's, you know, earlier you had touched on a redeployment of resources and allocation. Are you seeing a lot of providers working alongside you who are not general internists and specialists from other fields who are coming in to be a part of the frontline?
2: Yeah, so at Mount Sinai, pretty much every non-essential department has been redeployed into whether it's emergency department or internal medicine departments uh, to be alongside the internists in terms of managing COVID-19 patients. Uh, and but what the other part people forget is, you know, we still have to take care of all the non-COVID-19 patients. Like that patient population hasn't gone away, right? So, um, so I think that, Complicates things further. But certainly, you know, the dermatologist, the radiologist here, my friends are in those specialties that even are not related are now, you know, being pulled into those positions. And, you know, we're all doing the best we can with wherever we can. So I think that's really what it is at the end of the day.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Freddie. You know, your well-being is our well-being. So thank you so much for being on the front lines. We salute you (laughs) and we wish you health and safety. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Just
0: four days after Julia and Freddie's conversation, Freddie said there were nearly 1,800 COVID-19 positive patients in Mount Sinai Health System locations, including 330 patients in intensive care unit beds. And the Navy hospital ship that Freddie mentioned, so hopefully... It's unfortunately become admired in bureaucratic red tape. This is a time for all hands on deck. The MIT COVID-19 Challenge just wrapped up its second session this past weekend. But for more information about the challenge's future activities, please visit covid19challenge.mit.edu. That's C-O-V-I-D-1-9-challenge.mit.edu. For more ways to get involved, Visit MIT's COVID 19 Rapid Innovation Dashboard at innovation.mit.edu slash C19 Rapid Inno That's innovation.mit.edu slash C19 Rapid INNO Thank you for tuning into this episode of the MIT Catalysts. This episode was hosted by Julia Yu and produced by me, Irina fisher Huang. Special thanks to our guest, Freddie Nguyen, for taking the time out of his very busy schedule to chat with us. Thanks also to the MIT Club of Northern California, which sponsors this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Please stay tuned for upcoming episodes about how MIT community members are pitching in on the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. And we hope that you and your loved ones are all staying safe and healthy. Take care.